Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, uh, just really 10 and 11 and 12 in the next two weeks. And what I want to do is just to kind of give us a little bit of a place to land. Let's start with this idea here. Words mean different things to different people at different times and in different places. My wife and I recently started watching a TV show called New Amsterdam. It's a hospital drama. And uh, early on, they're developing characters, and there's this one doctor, Dr. VJ. He's an older, kind gentleman, very reserved, very methodical, and very slow in terms of the pace that you need to keep up in the ER. So the doctors always, when he's in the ER, they want him to move faster. And so, because it's so busy sometimes, and in this one episode, it's so busy uh, that they have to recruit him from another part of the hospital as well as other doctors to help out. And so he goes about his usual way, and he goes into a patient's room, and he says to her, tell me what's going on. How can we help you today? And she says, I'm dizzy. And he says, tell me more. And she says, I'm dizzy. (laughs) You know, dizzy. And the doctor's got an intern with him, and the intern goes, you know, dizzy, and points to his head. And she goes, well, he's a good doctor. (laughs) So, So the poor doctor is like, he says, you know what? I'm going to come back. I want you to think about that. So he just leaves. And she's frustrated, and the, the intern is perplexed, and they're walking to the next patient's room, and he looks at the intern, and he's like, why don't we some, run some tests? And he says, he just looks at her, so it looks at him and says, dizzy means different things to different people. Okay. On they go with the show. A little bit later, he goes back into the room again. Have you thought more about your condition? Can you give me some more information? Now she's frustrated and patronizing, and she just says the same word louder and more patronizing. Dizzy! I'm dizzy. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you some more time. (laughs) It just leaves. Um, The third time he goes in, and there's another doctor in the room with him, with the patient. And this doctor is a doctor of some repute. In fact, he's on the board of directors for the hospital. Very, very important person. Actually holds this doctor's job in his hands, as it were. And he's sitting there, and he looks up at Dr. VJ, this doctor, and says to him, so this patient's telling me you don't understand what the word dizzy means. Is that true? And then the patient says, oh, I'm going to jump on him for this. Yeah, dizzy. My head's spinning. I feel lightheaded. When I stand up, I can't even feel my feet. All of a sudden, all the symptoms come out. And he goes, oh, uh, I think you might have this. Let's run some tests. That's probably why you can't feel your feet when you stand up. All of a sudden, it comes to him because she gives some more information. Words mean different things to different people at different times in different places. I bet you guys can imagine that. I bet you've had experiences like that where you're using different words differently. Isn't language complicated enough? The English language, for every rule there is in grammar, there's an exception. And now you have to add another exception, and that is people use words differently at different times. Yeah, that's not confusing at all. Uh, that's true in the church too, isn't it? We have vocabulary in the church that's specific to the church, and we use it, and it's a bit ambiguous at times. I'll give you an example. Glory. Glory is an interesting word that we use in the church a lot, and it probably means different things to different people. 
we say all things to the glory of God. But what exactly do we mean by that? And I'll bet it means different things to different people. Literally, it means fame. In the Bible, it literally means weighty, and it speaks to the idea of that which is luminescent of light, but, but it can mean different things. We say, well, glory to God. What do we mean by that? Different things, right? Probably. I'll give you another one. How about this one, and this is going to be surprising to you. How about gospel? That should be a word that we're all on the same page with, right? But sometimes, no. It's the good news. Uh, sometimes when we're telling people the truth and we want to tell them the real deep truth, we call it the gospel truth. You ever heard of that phrase? That kind of means like the other truth you're telling me was not as true of a truth because this is the gospel truth. So it's really true, like super true. Okay. Sometimes when we say the gospel, we, we, we have ambi ambiguity about that. That's why there's so many books written on the gospel because we're not really sure for a lot of people. It's the good news. Yes, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's the good news of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of his spirit. Yes, yes, and yes. Sometimes we mean part of that. Sometimes we mean all of it. Sometimes we're referring to the first four, four books of the Bible because it's actually a literary genre, gospel. <laughs> so sometimes it means different things to different people. Now, we're going to see how this plays out in our passage this morning, but let me just start with this. Part one of, of two parts, looking at Hebrews 10 through 12, and we'll look at a little bit of a 10 and then get into 11, and the, the book of Hebrews can be summarized quite simply this way. Jesus is greater. Now that's an oversimplification, but let's take a look at what we mean by that. In the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, we, we read these words, uh, let me just turn to them quickly. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what we want to get from that is that the author is saying Jesus is God. He's equal with God, which makes him greater than everything else. The rest of chapter 1 through chapter 2 says that Jesus is greater than the angels and the Torah, the law of God. He's equal to the word of God because he is the word of God. That's part of the argument. You might say, well, why would the author start with angels? Why say that? Well, uh, in Jewish teaching, the angels were the ones who mediated the law. They gave the law. And so uh, we can glean that from Scripture in places too, uh, but it's emphasized in Jewish teaching. And so the writer of Hebrews would say, but Jesus is greater. He's, not, he's, he's greater than the one who mediates the law. He is the law. He is the Word incarnate. From there, we get Jesus is greater than Moses in the Promised Land, chapters 3 and 4. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the, the, the place that Moses is leading us to because that's a type or a shadow. We've talked about that for weeks now. It's the, not the temple in the garden or the tabernacle, but the holy city in the new heavens and the new earth. And he is our hope to lead us in that way. To the new creation. He's greater than all the priests, equal to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a, is a priest that shows up on the scene in Genesis 14, literally out of nowhere. That's what the writer of Hebrews highlights, that he has no genealogy, which speaks to a couple really important things, because this, this guy, Melchizedek, who's a priest, has no genealogy, which foreshadows that he has uh, no beginning. 
And whether, whether or not you want to get, that's a whole other subject to get into whether this person actually did or didn't, but the point is, there's no record of it, which foreshadows the actual eternal nature of Jesus as the great high priest. And Melchizedek is, is a priest who shows up on the scene, and then we don't see from him again. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, and then we see him here in the book of Hebrews. And his name is two Hebrew words, which was, as Melech is king, and Zedek means righteous. The king of righteousness from Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem. And so he's not from the order of the Abrahamic or the Levitical priests. Jesus is greater than that. And by the way, those priests would die. Right? So they had this role to, to come and be a priest in the, ta- the tabernacle, to guard and keep that, to function in that manner. But they lived for a little while, and what they would do is they would present the blood of bulls and goats after making atonement for their own sin and after washing, and they did it for a time, and then they died and were replaced by another priest. But Jesus never dies. He's eternal and presents the better covenant and the better blood in the true tabernacle. And so he's greater than even the priest's. And then in 10, 8 through 10, Jesus is greater than all the sacrifices. So all the things that the priests offer, Jesus is greater than that too. The perfect ones for all sacrifice. Jesus is greater. And so the point that comes to a head in 11 through 13 is remain faithful for he is faithful. That's a very, very uh, bird's eye view uh, a look at the book. Now let's come into our section here. But we'll first start by considering this thought again. When you get to Hebrews 11, what do you think the word is that means different things to different people? Faith. How many would say that they're familiar with or heard of, of Hebrews 11 before? It, kinda, it's, it gets highlighted in the book of Hebrews. If you're going to preach somewhere in, in Hebrews, sometimes you just jump into this chapter. It's sometimes referred to as the Hall of Fame of Faith. And I want to draw your attention to that because I don't think that's, a, that's the best way to describe the book. The whole idea here is that the writer is saying, be faithful because he is faithful. And we're going to show you not just a definition, although that's what you get at the beginning. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that you know, now faith is the, is, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And you get a definition, which you might think, well, that clears the air, Right? No more confusion about what faith means because you've got a definition. But it's not a comprehensive definition. And the rest of the chapter is laboring to show faith in action. Not a theology of faith, per se, but a history of it instead. And so there are some things that might be left a little bit ambiguous about our understanding of faith here. We look at these heroes of the faith, and that's true. But there's actually places in chapter 11 where we're told that by faith the walls of Jericho fell. And no heroes mentioned. In fact, the phrase by faith occurs 18 times in this chapter. Many times it's assigned to particular people. But like that, for example, it's assigned to the walls of Jericho. <laughs> so we always want to think about what, what the placement of that is. And, and to get us there a little bit more, we want to go back to this, this idea uh, of this definition. But also we can think about the words that come right before that. The very previous sentence is this, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so as, as the author is shifting gears into chapter 11, he is saying, let's talk a little bit about what faith is and how to apply it. And so he does exactly that. So let's just go back and take, take a look at this outline. And then we're just going to 
sort of break down a little bit the end of it to give us a little bit of context, as you know I like to do. If we start with that section that comes right beforehand, one of the things I want to draw your attention to is this. When the author is making the case that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient, we read this, these words in chapter uh, 10, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, that is our sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. And I want to draw your attention to that for just a moment to give us a little sense of this. What is the object of our faith? Or who is the object of our faith? So if you go to, to uh, 11.1, you get a definition of faith. The rest of 11 is going to give us a history of faith. But what we're going to get here is a little bit of a focus on who our faith is in. That's what we want to be thinking about, right? Faith is not something that you conjure on your own that has some magical potion that makes God happy. Faith rests in its object, in this case, in Christ. And what's profound about this verse here, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see, in the old system, the priests would offer sacrifices for sins daily. And then uh, uh, annually on the Day of Atonement. They were regularly offered over and over and over again because they were insufficient. They were meant to foreshadow the once-for-all sacrifice for Christ, which simply means that when, when, when the writer says this, he says, listen, your sins... Do not have to continually be, uh, no, there's no need for continual sacrifices for them. Your sins, past, present, and future, are all uh, atoned for by the once for all sacrifice for Christ. That's good news. And we want to think about that because that, that's, that's what Christ is doing in heaven. Right? We say that he's, he's interceding for us in heaven, he's presenting not re-offering. He's presenting that perfect sacrifice so that our sins are forgiven. Always. And so when you sin and you confess your sin, you're not asking for, you are asking for forgiveness, but what you're doing is acknowledging that you've broken the law of God and are dependent on that once for all sacrifice for your forgiveness. You're acknowledging that you've, you have gone astray from your new identity in Christ from your, your membership in the bride as the Spirit indwells you, that you've gone against that. Now from there we get what we, what we looked at as our call to worship, and I use it as a call to worship because, boy, there's a lot there to think through. There's encouragement and charges in it. But I want you to get just a little sense of the object of your faith by listening to these words real quickly to think about what it is that Christ has done. He writes, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. And by the way, what is the holy place? It, it's not the temple, the brick and mortar temple. That's done with. This is what he says. The holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. What, we're, what he's saying is, the blood of Jesus enables us not to enter into the brick-and-mortar temple, which is what Hebrews calls a copy of the original. In fact, it's a striking thing to think about when the, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about that. What he's saying is this. When Moses was building the tabernacle in the wilderness, God gave him a copy of the true heavenly tabernacle. He's not building something new. He's building a copy of the eternal heavenly temple. You get a, a, a shadow of it. It's not the real thing. 
It's based on something that's eternal, that precedes it, and it points towards the eternal thing again, right? So the, the tabernacle with all of its details is really just a copy, an earthly, um, less powerful, less profound, certainly temporal copy of the eternal heavenly throne room. And that requires not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the once-for-all perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus. His blood enables you not to enter into the, the brick-and-mortar uh, temple, but into the heavenly throne room. And listen to the language that he gives further to describe that by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Think about that for a minute. We've talked about this uh, a good bit the last few weeks. When Jesus died and says it is finished, the veil in the tabernacle is torn. Uh, in the temple, excuse me, right? But that physical veil is, is a symbol of our new access to God but it truly comes not through the torn curtain, but through the torn flesh of Christ. He becomes the veil. Not entrance into the Holy of Holies in the brick and mortar temple, but in the heavenly temple. His very flesh becomes the curtain that enables us to enter into the presence of a holy God. That's remarkable. This is the object of your faith. And it's a lot, but I want you to just... Let that steep. That's profound. You enter in through the torn veil that is the flesh of Christ, not into the tabernacle on the earth, not into the copy, but into the throne of God, into the throne room of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, more temple imagery, but also demonstrating not just the object of our faith as the sacrifice, but also the object of our faith as the perfect high priest. Who is Christ? He is the perfect sacrifice. Who is Christ? He's our perfect high priest who doesn't need to atone for his own sins because he has none and atones for us perfectly once for all. Since we have this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of what? Faith. Since we have that, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. We get a, a, a robust, more full-orbed uh, definition of the object of our faith. And we approach in faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, more uh, temple imagery, priestly imagery, uh, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. More about faith. He who promised is faithful. Uh, think about that. Not only is he the perfect sacrifice, and not only is the, he's the, the perfect high priest, the eternal priest, but he is unchanging in his eternal nature, which means when he promises that these are sufficient, perfect, that never, ever changes. He remains faithful because he's unchanging. And so the certainty of the object of your faith rests not in just what he did, but in the fact that he is forever faithful. You can trust in that now as much as the Hebrews did in the first century and forever because the sufficiency of Christ is in fact once and for all. That doesn't change. So we're, we, we, we act in faith because he who promised is faithful and the charge, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And certainly a good word of encouragement for us as we transition 
and the challenges that come with us. Let us not neglect to gather together as is the habit of some. That is the charge of God to come together on the Lord's day to worship. From here, just to give us a little bit of a sense of this, he goes on to make a point that is also a comparative to Moses. And talking about uh, uh, taking advantage of this once-for-all sacrifice and rights, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so here's the Moses comparison. You know the audience of, of this letter, and you know that the, the law of Moses says that if, it, if there's evidence of two or three that you've broken that law, you will be punished. And he's saying, if that's true, then how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And let me just pause here for a moment and tell you, uh, if that's jarring and unsettling, that's the point. That is the point. The writer of Hebrews offers many, many warnings that have an eternal significance to them. But the comfort comes in the words. You've got you to get the warning and then the comfort comes. But recall the former days when you were enlightened, that is, coming to saving faith, and you endured hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you're not alone. You endure suffering as members of the body of Christ together. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's a little foreshadowing of what you're going to get in chapter 11, which is the vision towards heaven. For the uh, Israelites in the wilderness, uh, many of them were looking back to Egypt and Moses was saying, no, look here. Look to the, the promised land. Look to the heavenly Jerusalem. Don't be drawn back to that. And that's what they're doing here. Don't throw away your confidence, he writes, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. You need that confidence because you need endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come again and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. There it is again, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So I, I just want you to get a little sense of that. I know that's a lot as a background to Hebrews 11. But you know me, I love context, and I want you to get a sense of that. Because so much of Hebrews is, is 11 is not only about faith, but it's the transition point. We, with the, the author has argued over and over and over again about the, the, the greatness of Christ greater than all these things, and now comes the application. Chapters 11, 12, and 13. And so we get, um, uh, and I want, I want to show you this. Chapter 10 gives us context, right? So we, we have context for faith. That is, who is the object of our faith as the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest and the unchanging eternal nature of that so that we, ha we have trust in that promise that doesn't change. Context for this idea of faith to help us further flesh out what he means. And chapter 11 opens with a definition. 
We get a definition of faith, and, and which follows with many examples of faith. As I said, not a theology of faith, but a history of it. But you might say there's something missing here. What we haven't asked and answered yet is where does faith come from? What is the origin of faith? I said it's not something that you conjure up on your own, and that makes God happy. Where does faith come from? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us at the beginning of chapter 12, at the end of this history of faith. Chapter 12 tells us right away of the origin of faith. It rests in Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're charged to look to him. The founder and perfecter, the beginning and the end. The founder, he, he's the one who plants the seed like the mustard seed of faith in you. And he's the perfecter. So we go to him. He's the one who waters and cultivates that. And he gives us means to do that, like scripture or the word of God and the prayer that we have and fellowship with one another and the table and communion. All of those things are means by which we would cultivate that. And what we're going to see in chapter 11 is all of these examples of it in faith. But trust me, they're not heroes of faith because they somehow have this perfect, unwavering, stalwart faith. They have it because they go to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. That faith is strengthened and bolstered because they continually recognize their need to go to the source and perfecter of their faith, God. It reminds me of two of my favorite prayers in Scripture. From the father who asked Jesus to heal his son. And he says, do you believe? And the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. One of my favorite prayers. It's one of my favorite prayers because it's so honest. And it recognizes that there's a faith that's, a, that's fragile in this father, but it's real and he's honest before the one in whom he has faith in. So here's the father having faith toward and in the object of his faith who's before him. And he says, I believe, but I need help. Doubt creeps in, and I struggle. Come on now, show of hands. I believe, help my unbelief. This is a, this is a really good prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers. I love this prayer because that's me. I believe, but man, I am struggling. God already knows that. He loves the honest prayer. If you pray a really glorious and beautiful prayer that sounds wonderful and perfect, Guess who knows that that's not true? <laughs> the object of your faith, the one you're praying to. Here's one more. The, the uh, disciples with Jesus, after he tells them about the dangers of temptation, and he says, if your brother comes to you and asks you for forgiveness, you got to forgive him. No matter how many times he comes and asks you for, for, for forgiveness, if he's genuinely repentant, you need to forgive him. And here's their response. Lord, increase our faith. It's another really good prayer. That's an acknowledgement by the disciples to the object of their faith of the weakness of their faith. These are good prayers. Here's what I want to do. In the time that I have left, which is however long I want it to be, but you're stuck with me, but in the time that I have left, I want to walk through Hebrews 11, and I want us to be thinking about these prayers. These saints of old that, that are painted as having this perfect faith, it's not perfect. They're human. They're sinners. Scripture, the rest of Scripture declares that without question. 
They have a faith whose founder and perfecter is Christ. So here's what we want to do. We want to walk through that, keeping this definition in mind and keeping this idea of the founder and perfecter. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, the writer of Hebrews says at the end of, of 11, let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So I want to keep these prayers in mind and keep this truth in mind. This is what bookends uh, this uh, history of faith. And so we're just going to run through it real quickly. And I, I want to just point out a couple things as we do some interesting things to draw your attention to. So we have this definition in the first part. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation, that is their reward, and then the first of 18 declarations, by faith. And here's what I want you to see. The author of Hebrews begins his time by speaking to his audience. Keep that in mind, right? He's going to go through this history. He's going to go all the way back to the beginning of the history of Israel. But he starts with his people. By faith. Now, he's going all the way back to creation, but he assigns that faith to the corporate body of people that are receiving this letter at that time. By faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, if you're in the dispersia, which is the fancy word for the dispersed Christians that the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to, if you're under persecution, if you're tempted to go back to the more acceptable religion in the culture, and the, and, the, and the writer is making the case, don't do that, one of the things you can do is say, don't look to the things that are seen but to the things that are not seen. So don't look to the physical temple, but look to the heavenly temple. Have what, what the church later would say is a beatific vision. See Christ, look forward. And that language is going to come up several times in this chapter. That's the charge to him. And then we get the history. Second, by faith. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And, though he's, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so we begin with Abel as the first of the righteous people of God who is murdered by Cain, his blood shed, but he offers the acceptable sacrifice. And uh, we, we do this a lot in, in the third mill classes, a striking thing to think about. Uh, when Moses is writing this history, one of the things that he's doing is he's saying, let's look at the history of Cain and Abel because I want to encourage the Israelites in the wilderness. Abel is like us. He's the shepherd who offers the sacrifice of the animal and Cain is like the Egyptians, a farmer who becomes a murderer, right? Which is what the Egyptians did to the Israelites, murdered. And so the, those parallels are, are, are striking to think about. By faith, Enoch was, uh, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was... And he was not found because God had taken him up. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so this beautiful picture of Enoch in the midst of this, this genealogy of Genesis 5, and if you're, familiar with it, if you're not familiar with that, that's this genealogy that has all these people that live for a really, really long time. Like... 
That's a fun topic to, to read about, these people that live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I think the oldest one is 969 years. But the motif repeats over and over again, and he died, consequence of sin, and he died, and he died. Enoch's the exception, which gives us this glimpse of resurrection life, glimpse of eternal life in the midst of that consequence of sin, a bit of the gospel in the midst of the consequence of sin. By faith, verse 7 Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now just picture Noah for a moment, if you will. It probably took him hundreds of years at least decades to build the ark. Scholars debate about this. Didn't happen quickly. We know that. And here he is building this clearly unmovable boat in the middle of land because he heard God. And all around him, he's being mocked and jeered and called insane, right? Can you just imagine Noah in his weak moments? Lord, am I really nuts? Did you actually say that there's going to be a flood? How am I going to get the animals in here? It's not hard to imagine that Noah might have a few moments where he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, increase my faith. You will relate to Noah. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, of, out, out to a place that he was that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's a good word for us. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He had the right vision. And the author of Hebrews recognizes that. And Abram was anything but perfect. He made some bad choices over the years. And he too would have moments of doubt. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I'd probably say that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews needs to work a little bit on his bedside manner. I'm just imagining that Abram, if he were to read that at 90, he'd say, really? As good as dead? Still here. But seriously, what, what you're getting from this is this picture of Sarah who has faith. But Sarah, when she has Isaac, uh, how the story goes is the three visitors visit Abram and they tell him, this time next year your wife is going to conceive, which was striking to him and even more to her because she laughed. She laughed at that, which is, by the way, Isaac's name means laughter, right? So she names the child of promise laughter, but she laughs, which means what? She had a little bit of doubt. That's absurd there, Lord. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, increase my faith because that takes a lot for me to believe that at my age and him at his age, we're going to be able to have a child. 
In fact, Abram, uh, before he becomes Abraham, uh, pleads with God and says, I- I've, been, I've been decades waiting for you to fulfill the promise. And, and God says, look to the stars, count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. And he believes him. But he pleads to him and says, I'm concerned. It looks to me like the, my, my inheritance is going to go to, to a, a servant in my household, not to a child. And God says, no, no, no. But you see that Abram had moments where he doubted and he struggled with God. Sarah too. This is what it says in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the thing promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Which, by the way, is our title. Exiled from the garden, exiled from the promised land because this isn't our home. In fact, Peter says that we're exiles. He says we're elect exiles, but exiles nonetheless. That's part of who we are in this life. It's part of your identity as a Christian. You're an exile. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Listen to this language. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return like the Israelites in the wilderness wanting to go back to Egypt. But they had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So there's that language again. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he he has prepared for them a city. If you think we're done with Abraham, we're not. We get Abraham again, verse 17, by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through off. Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did bring him back. Now, if there's a time in Scripture where the profound nature of Genesis 22 depicts the gospel, it's this one. The father who delights in his son and gives him up for his people. It's foreshadowing of God the Father giving his son. Only in the gospel, uh, unlike the story of, of Abraham, there is no ram in the thicket because the sacrifice still needs to be offered. Jesus does go and does die. He's never rescued. But it's also not hard to imagine that Abraham is having a definitive crisis moment of faith. As he stood over his child, who he loves and adores as a father with a knife in hand, clearly crying out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. As he wrestled with whether or not this God who makes this promise is actually going to keep the promise. This is not just a loving father. This is a child of God going, who, what are you doing? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If there was ever a place where we could relate to that, it would be here. It's not about Abram's perfect faith. It's about him crying out to God, the founder and perfecter of his faith. It strengthens his faith, and that's what he does. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. All of this, as we, when we're in the... the Uh, series on Joseph, uh, highlights the fact that they knew that they were not meant to stay in Egypt, but go to a better place, go to the promised land, and that's here as well. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Clearly, that's not about the faith of Moses. That's about the faithfulness of Moses' parents. They saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There's that language again. And I think that's a clear evidence of that. It's not like Moses made a one-time decision to dispense with the fleeting pleasures of, of Egypt. And remember, he's raised in the house of Pharaoh, uh, not wanting for anything, right? He's the richest man on earth. And, that, and Moses gets the privileges of that. And he sees his people and their plight. Uh, but that's not a one-time thing. That's a wrestling all the time. That's a, a daily going to the cross and dying, if you will. That's a Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, every day I have to wrestle and put to death the temptations of fleeting sin and choose the reproach of Christ and keep my eyes on the mission that is of the heavenly city as he says it here. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the danger or the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on the dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do so, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with, her, with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? The author is basically saying, I could go on. For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, and David, and Samuel, and all the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Talk about a heavenly vision. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of, of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Listen to this verse. Since God had provided something better for us. Now it comes back to the original audience. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Just think about this for a minute. So we get this anthology of faith, this history of faith. Where we get a definition, we get the history of it. But it starts with his audience and it ends with them. It ends with us. I want you to just chew on that for a minute. What he's saying is that as profound as that exercise of faith is, and this is God's faith, the founder and perfecter of that faith, bringing about his redemptive purposes throughout history, through his people, 
But it's not just what they've done. It's what we do too. Because apart from us, they are not yet made perfect. You see, they comprise members of the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. And there are lots of members. Which is why it is that some, like we have the Lord will we'll tarry, to use an old-fashioned word, generation after generation after generation after generation because there's more members of the body of Christ that God has sovereignly ordained to be born, to live, to come to saving faith, to serve Him in the church militant, and to die and be woven in to the body of Christ. Such, so much so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And by the way, that's not an us and them thing, right? It sounds like that, but it's really us and them coming together. They're just distinguishing that in terms of time. In the now of the kingdom, we're a little bit apart. In the not yet of the kingdom, we are with them together as one. That's the culmination of faith. You and I are members of the body of Christ, members of the bride. In other words, everything that Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and, Mo- and Sarah and Moses and all, all the patriarchs, they, they're part of us and we are part of them. That's inescapable. They and we together make up the complete body of Christ. So much so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You remember last week we, we, we uh, were considering at the end of Revelation 22 that the, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Bride in heaven who is without sin, but there's still something missing. They've not attained to perfection just yet. They long for that. It's not sin they're contending with, but they're waiting for the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth, and they're waiting for the rest of the members of the body of Christ, you and I, and whoever else may come to be a part of that, because they are not yet perfect. I can think of no greater charge for us to love others than to recognize that I might be loving someone who is a member of the body of Christ, and my salvation is not made perfect unless theirs is. And together, what do we do? We go to the founder and perfecter of our faith. Your faith is not your thing that you conjure up. Could you imagine if that were the case? Could you imagine if it was all about how good your faith was conjured on your own? Could you imagine what heaven would be like? Martin Luther famously says that as, a, as an Augustinian month, monk, in the, in the communities that were the, the, the monks separated from the world, you know what got in there? Not the world, but pride. I'm a better monk than you. I'm more holy than you. It almost feels like heaven could be like that if that were the case. Well, let me tell you the story about my faith. Because my faith got me all the way here to heaven. Oh, really? Well, my faith was even better than yours. Oh, no. No. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Humble yourselves before the King of Kings who is the one who plants the mustard seed of faith, the one who cultivates the mustard seed of faith, who grows that faith to be strong and powerful for his glory, for his kingdom, and for his bride made perfect. Amen? Let me pray, 
And then I want to encourage you to, to uh, partake of a, a meal together in fellowship. And then when that's done, uh, at a certain point, we will uh, come, come back together for our meeting to talk a little bit about um, the proposal that you asked me to give you a little uh, sense of for that's coming up uh, with the session uh, this week and to talk a little bit about some strategizing for how we're going to um, um, move to the community center. So I want to encourage you to, to stay for that and at a, at a some point after a little bit of time uh, fellowshipping, we'll, we'll start that up. Let me pray together and we'll pray for the food as well. Are we all set for that? Yes? Okay, so Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not done with us yet. We thank you for faith that comes from you, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that we too belong to the body of Christ and that you are not finished with us. You are making us perfect, as the husband does, to present us spotless. Lord, we ask that you would be with us in our time of fellowship. Bless the food. Bless our time of fellowship. May it be pleasing to you. Grow us in that. We thank you for this. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.